Praise God. Let's turn our attention now to God's word. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to join me at Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 15, Gospel of Luke and chapter 15, and uh, just to give you a little bit of context, Jesus is east of the Jordan River, his 12 disciples and some other followers are following him. Listening to his teaching, this whole section here, if you go back to, if you go back to uh, all the way back, you know, several chapters, you'll see, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see a lot of red letters. Because it comes in the midst of a very large teaching section. And Jesus is being followed by a number of his followers, including the 12 disciples, but there are also some Pharisees and scribes following him as well. Now, his followers are obviously following him to learn from him and to be near him and so forth. But the, the Pharisees and scribes are not following for that reason. Uh, they're, they're following to criticize him. They are not followers of Jesus. These were the leaders of the Jewish church, the experts in the Old Testament. If you will, the clean, upstanding, moral, religi- religious, church-going members of society of the day, but they were calling, uh, following Jesus to question and condemn him. And the reason that they were is because in verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was keeping close fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Of course, the tax collectors were the Benedict Arnolds of the society. They were the ones that had sold out to the ruling Roman government. Can you imagine a go- some, comp- com- some country coming in here and taking over our country and then someone you know going to work for that country? What would you think of them? This is the case with the tax collectors. And, of course, the sinners, that word is a, is a word that means someone who is uh, living uh, a very immoral lifestyle, and there are a lot of different variations of that but these were the people that Jesus was keeping close fellowship with and so the Pharisees and the scribes are are criticizing him in verse 2 and so what Jesus does here is he tells three parables we're only going to look at the second one here but he tells three parables in response to the criticism and here's the gist of the teaching of the three parables now there's a lot of sub points but the gist of the three parables are this In his response to the Pharisees and scribes, he's teaching that, number one, God loves lost people. And he goes to great lengths to find them and save them. And he takes great joy in doing so. And we should take great joy in the same. That's the gist of it, the teaching. And so today we'll look at uh, verses 1 and 2 and then verses 8 and 10 through 10, the parable of the lost coin, but I will read all the way through verse 10, 1 through 10, just so we can see the whole uh, collection of verses together, and then we'll focus on 1 and 2 and then 8 through 10. And so let's give our attention now to God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word, our only rule of faith and practice. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, 
This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I was lost, which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Father, as was alluded to earlier in the opening prayer, uh, we are a people who who do need help. We don't come and pray this prayer of illumination as a, as a box checker in the service. We don't do that. We need illumination. We need you to unstop our ears and eyes. We need you to sweep away our drowsiness. We need you to give us a faith-filled expectation that you're going to speak to us through your Holy Spirit right now. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you do that now? Would you speak to all of us here, including myself? Would you have your way with us, and would you make this profitable for our souls, for your glory, and for our well-being? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was preparing to go to my 25th college reunion. The 30th is uh, now past that I didn't make it to, but I, was, I did go to the 25th, and I was preparing to go to the 25th, and I was making my preparations and looking forward to the reunion. I hadn't seen uh, these classmates in years, and you know yourself, when you prepare to go to a reunion, especially if it's a reunion where you hadn't seen a lot of people, it's an exciting thing to look forward to, and so I was preparing to go to the reunion, and there was a lot to prepare for because I had to, to go a ways away, and I was taking my sons with me. And, but there was one thing that I couldn't find when I was preparing for the reunion. It was my class ring. It was my class ring. I had lost it in the move at the time we were living in North Carolina, and we'd moved from Alabama to North Carolina, and I'd lost it in the move. And I hadn't seen it in over two years. It was a very valuable thing to me. It might not be valuable to other people, but it was valuable to me. Why? Because it represented a lot of hard work, right? If you have a class ring, whether it's a high school ring or a college ring, you, you know that it represents a lot of hard work to get to that point. And... As well, it represented something that I had to scrape my pennies together for well over a year and a half to buy because I didn't have any money at the time. And so 
it was very important, and of course it represents accomplishment as well, but I'd lost it. I thought I'd stored it in a particular bureau drawer, but it wasn't there, and so uh, my wife and I, we turned the house upside down, we looked in every single drawer, every single bureau, we turned the cars upside down, we literally looked underneath the seats of the cars and thinking that maybe it fell down in there during the move or something, and we couldn't find it. And so I just resigned myself that, you know, it was gone. And so the day before we were going to leave to go on the trip to the reunion, I was in my office uh, packing up uh, some papers and things that I knew I needed to take with me. And I pulled out my, my briefcase, which I hardly ever use, and I pulled it out, and I was packing my papers in there, and I, you know, there was this one little pocket in the, and I just kind of had this flashing thought, I wonder what's in that pocket. Reached down in that pocket, what do you know, there was the ring. Of course, then I went to my wife, and I said, why'd you put it in there? That <laughs> sound familiar? <laughs> but the truth is, we were both rejoicing over the ring. We were both rejoicing that we'd found the ring. Can you relate? I think a lot of you can because I can see it on your faces. I think there's been a time in your life when you had something that was lost and you thought you weren't going to be able to find it and you found it and then you experienced this joy of finding what you didn't think you were going to find, what was lost. Yet, how would that joy compare in value to you versus the joy of seeing a lost soul be saved. You see, the teaching here is threefold. First of all, that the, that the degree that we value a soul that is lost, number one, will in turn reflect, number two, our degree to, of effort to see that soul potentially come to Christ, which will in turn reflect Number three, our degree of rejoicing over that soul potentially being saved, seeing that soul saved. And that's why we want to look at this passage today together. We want to look at it, first of all, the value of souls and how we value souls. And secondly, how that reflects on our degree of effort to go to see a soul potentially be saved. Of course, we don't save souls ourselves, but we do have uh, some part in the whole God's work of that. And then thirdly, that will reflect our degree of joy of seeing that person hopefully get saved. Now, what is the value of a soul? Let's, let me read you the definition of a soul out of my American, American Heritage Dictionary. It reads like this. The spiritual, rational, and immortal substance in man, which distinguishes him, distinguishes him from animals, that part of man which enables him to think and reason. Now, the Bible teaches us that man is composed of two parts. Now, I know that there are some speculation in uh, theological circles about the First Thessalonians 5 passage, two or three parts. I take Calvin's view, two parts, so that's where I'm standing today, that, God is, that the man has been created by God in two parts. He is composed of the body, which is physical, which is temporary, and he is composed of the soul, 
which is lasts forever and which is invisible. But what is the value of the soul to the world? <clears throat> well, very little. You know, you look down here at verse 8, and this woman has ten silver coins, and she loses one coin. Now, the one coin there is approximately equal to one day's wage, one day's wage, which is a fair amount of money, but, I mean, it's not all that much money. I mean, if you, if you get right down to it, if you lost one day's wage, one day's worth of pay, it wouldn't be all that hard to make it the rest of the year. Let's just look at it like this. If you work six days a week, 50 weeks a year, that's 300 days a year. And if you lose one day of pay, that's one three hundredth of your yearly pay. Nobody wants to lose that, but it's not all that bad to lose one three hundredth of your yearly pay. And that line of thinking that I just laid out, very often is how we determine the worth and value of a soul. In other words, through a physical type of a determination, a physical determination of a value of a spiritual, invisible, permanent reality, which is the soul. And the reason that we can find ourselves valuing someone by the physical type of thinking I just described is because we're swallowed up by the physical world almost all week, right? Of course, we, we have our daily devotions and we have our prayer times and so forth. But the reality of it is we're swallowed up by the physical world most of the time. And that's what we spend most of our attention on. And so we can find ourselves determining the value of a soul, not consciously necessarily, but maybe unconsciously, by the physical, which is what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing here. You notice here they determined the value of these people that Jesus was having close fellowship with by two things. First of all, you look down at verse 1, by first of all their vocation. It mentions the tax collectors here. And I mentioned the tax collectors a while ago. Who would be the tax collectors of today? Well, it, it, you know, it could be, you've heard the lawyer jokes. You know, we, we can make a determination on someone's value by the fact that they're doing a, a certain uh, type of work for a living. They're a lawyer. They're a politician. And I'm not going to go into what a lot is said about these kind of people because I think we all know. Uh, this person's, you know, not employed at all. We can make a judgment call on that grounds. We can make a judgment call based on, secondly, their lifestyle. Here in verse 1 again, if we look down, we have sinners described. Sinners at, at that time would have been uh, people that were living immoral lifestyles. It could have been a prostitute, uh, could have been other types of immoral lifestyles. Uh, today, who would that be? Uh, it could be a drug dealer. It could be a thief. Uh, it could be uh, the black sheep of the family. It could be a poor person. It could be a bum on the street. You fill in the blank. And so to value someone in terms of these things 
which, is, which are physical determinations of their value, what happens is, is what happens to the Pharisees and the scribes. They, they were grumbling. They were complaining here in verse 2. And what they were really doing is, is they were judging. They were judging these people that Jesus was with, and they were judging Jesus for being with them the way he was. And so this is how the world would determine someone's value. But what about God? How does God determine someone's value? And I think that's related here by the value of the one, quote-unquote, insignificant silver coin that the woman lost. And you look down here at verse 8, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin? Now, now, again, this one coin was only worth approximately one day's wage. But what made it so valuable? You see, when Jew- Jewish girls got married at this time, they were given a headband of ten silver coins. They were given a headband of ten silver coins. And this, was, this showed that they were now a wife. Very similar now to a wedding ring. A woman would get now a wedding ring. And to lose one coin would be similar today to, let's just say you had a woman who had a wedding ring and had uh, maybe a multiple stone setting, and maybe she lost the one little side stone on the side that, that the world may not think is all that much and can be replaced with not all that much hardship, but yet to the woman, it means a whole lot. And I think we all understand that. And this would have been what it would be like for this woman to lose one of those coins in her wedding headband, so to speak. And the fact is that God values every single human soul because we're told in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created every soul uniquely. He created your soul uniquely, and he created every other soul uniquely, whether someone's a believer or not a believer. And that we were created in his image, Genesis 1. And so the coin by itself, even though it was not worth all that much, what gave it its worth and its legitimate value was the stamp on the coin, which was more than likely the stamp of Caesar, the ruler at the time of of the modern world. That's what actually gave it its worth. Even though it was lost in this woman's house, even though it was covered up by dirt, it was worth a lot because it had the ruler's stamp on it. And so the coin's value was determined by the ruler's stamp, but man's value is determined by God's stamp on man's value. Man is the image and glory of God, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Now, how do you determine somebody's value? If we fall into the trap of determining their value from a physical sense, then we can find ourselves where the Pharisees were. And I don't know where you're at with that. That's between you and God. But, you know, I'll have to confess that uh, just just this past week, we were on vacation, and uh, we were up in Tennessee, and we went to a park, and uh, had some. Uh, we had a picnic at a park, 
and uh, there were some people at the park that, you know, were tough to be around. And uh, honestly, I, I struggled with this. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, here you got to preach this sermon on Sunday, bud. You better get your act together. Practice what you preach, right? Uh, but it, it's, it, it's can be, it can be difficult, especially when you're around you know, people that are difficult to be around. But it's what we're taught here and in other places in, in the Bible. And so we can find ourselves being critical and judgmental of people and evaluating them based on the physical or we can be like Jesus here because Jesus was evaluating them based on the teaching that he's given here. Jesus is teaching. He was evaluating these tax collectors and sinners because he had made them. They were valuable to him because he had made them and he had made their souls. And therefore they were drawn near to him. And that is why it matters so much, one of the reasons why it matters so much, how we view people. Because we're either going to repel them, as the Pharisees and scribes would have done. You know, when they make this comment in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them, it, we don't know for sure, but it, it seems like they're saying that with the tax collectors and sinners able to hear that. And of course they would have felt judged uh, if, they, if they actually heard those words. But see, it can be the other way too. They can be attracted to us if we are valuing their souls. Because you look down at verse 1 here, and it says that the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Now here was the most holy, perfect person that's ever walked this earth. He had never done anything wrong. But he was also the most non-judgmental person. Now, he didn't approve of their sin and their sinful lifestyles, but he loved them, their souls. And they knew that. And that's why they were attracted to Jesus. Jesus didn't necessarily go after them. It doesn't say that. It says that they were drawn, they were drawn to him because they, know, they knew he loved their soul. Several years ago, uh, there was a tool that came out for churches called Mission Insight. Mission Insight. And a number of denominations, evangelical denominations, have bought this tool and provided it to churches. And what it is, is it, it is a data tool that, that uh, this company has gone out into uh, America and gathered data from uh, all different kinds of people, pr primarily people that are, that are unchurched, and don't even maybe even have any religious status whatsoever. And you might have heard this category of people called nuns. These are people that claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Not that they're necessarily against religion. They just don't have anything to do with religion and never have in many cases. But this data tool went out and has gone out and through, through different uh, means, collected the thoughts of these people, these non-unchurched people, and what do they think, and why do they think it, and so forth. And, and uh, it, it, one of the questions that I put into it at the time, this was several years ago, was the top, what are the top ten reasons 
that these people would consider for not participating in a religious congregation or community? What are the top ten reasons that these people would consider not participating in a religious congregation or community? A, a broad question. And the number one answer was that religious people are too judgmental. That was the number one answer. Now that we can go down a lot of rabbit holes with that, all I'm doing is relaying to you the, the information that came out of the data tool. In other words, they, they felt like, at least uh, they felt like maybe the tax collectors and sinners may have felt here with the Pharisees and the scribes what they said to them. But you see, it can be the other way as well because there are believers out there, and you might be one of them, that are like Jesus, where in verse 1, he loved their souls to the point where they felt it and they were drawn near to him because they knew that he loved their soul. You see, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, had a Sunday school in Chicago years ago and although he was a great evangelist, he had a great Sunday school as well for children. And there was a particular boy that walked several miles to get to the Sunday school. And he walked past a number of different churches to get to that Sunday school. And someone asked him, why, why do you walk through past all these churches? Why don't you just attend one of these churches that are a lot closer to home? You're walking several miles to church. <coughs> and his answer was, because they love a feller over there. They love a feller over there. That love attracted that boy. And as we love people's souls for what they are, we may not love their behavior, but we love their souls. It attracts them because that's Jesus attracting them through us. And so, first of all, the level of that we've we see the level of valuing souls here by seeing them as Jesus sees them. And secondly, we'll see that as we do that, that will reflect our effort to see them get saved. Look down at verse 8, if you will. It, it says here that the woman, if she, lost, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. You see... She, you see the effort that the woman went to there to find the one coin, the one lost coin. And so the question is, is how do we move to be more like Jesus in how we see people and view people, especially the more difficult to be around people? How do we do that? And the first thing we have to do is we have to be found ourselves. We have to know that we've, we've trusted Christ. We have to know that, that we have indeed been found. And we have to have come to him and repented and received him in faith and trusted in him and laid it all on him and known that we've done that. And uh, I, don't, I don't know you folks, uh, so if there's one person here today that hasn't done that, I want to call you to Christ today or receive Christ today. Make that right. Make, put that to bed and nail the back door shut on that because we have to have Christ coming in our hearts and saving our souls and changing our hearts before we'll ever be able to have him through us 
help us to love other people. And so we must know him personally as Savior and Lord. But see, after that, though, we must clearly see the value God has for our own souls to come and save our own souls. We must be gripped by that. It's only then that we'll be moved uh, at the level of the will to, to act in this manner towards other people. And you see, you, need, you and I need to be reminded in a very uh, regular way that we were once lost. And you say, well, I, you might be like my wife. My wife never knows a day where she didn't know Christ. Okay, well, that, that's good. I'm, I, that's, that's great. But there was some point in time she was lost. Maybe, maybe she got saved when she was two years old, three years old. We don't really know. But all right, fine. At one day old, she was lost, okay, if we're going to split hairs. The point is, at, point, at some point in time, if you know Christ, you were lost at one point in time, and so was I. I came to know Christ when I was 24. I remember vividly what it was like to be lost and to not know that I was lost and to walk around, not even thinking about it, and being oblivious to the whole thing. But you were lost at one time, and so was I. We didn't deserve to be saved. We didn't do anything to earn to be saved. In fact, we deserved to not be saved. But we didn't get what we deserved. You see, the hound dog of heaven came and tracked you down. The hound dog of heaven came and tracked me down. And he brought us to himself. And he didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? Because he loved your soul. And he wanted to save you. And you were one of his elect. And he brought you to himself. And therefore you enjoy grace. But it is all of grace. And I enjoy grace. And it's all grace. And it's undeserved. But yet it's there. Grace upon grace. You see. It's only when we are captivated and captured at the level of heart. By these truths that we'll be driven, we'll be driven to have our minds changed and our hearts changed towards other people and see them as the soul that they are made in God's image, no matter how difficult they are to deal with on the outside. And when we are gripped like that, it's, when, it's only then that we will get out of our comfort zone and talk to these people and be used by God through, through the Holy Spirit working through us to, be, to, to, be, to draw these people. God draws these people to, to us through uh, his Holy Spirit working through our hearts. And then invite them to church or share the gospel with them and pray that God would save them. Pray that God would save them. You, you may have people in your, in your families that you, your heart maybe... I do. I have people in my family that it breaks my heart to see them uh, lost. And I, I pray for them all the time. I want to see them saved. And God willing, they, they will be one day. And so, so we, we, we value someone's soul the way God teaches us uh, here in his word because it's, they're made in God's image. That will, in, in turn, uh, affect our 
our effort to share the gospel with them or see that they hear the gospel and pray for their salvation. And then third and lastly, it will, it will in turn reflect our degree of joy of seeing them hopefully get saved, our degree of joy of hopefully seeing them get saved. Now, we look down here at verse 9, and we see the joy. It says that when she has found it, here are the coin, which represents the lost soul. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so we have angels here being joyful in heaven over one sinner who repents. We have angels being joyful. Now, I think we have to take a step back and say, that's um, kind of interesting that the angels would be so joyful because these angels, you know, they've never, they've never fallen, uh, they've never sinned, and they've never been, they, never, they don't need to be saved. You know, they're, they're sinless beings. They don't need to be saved. They're good to go and always have been good to go with God. Well, what's this joy in heaven all about? Well, I think we have to step back a minute and remember that they, they, they saw Satan and, and Satan's followers, the other angels which are now demons, fall from heaven. They saw, they saw sin happen with Satan and, and, the, and the angels. And they have seen the plan of salvation unfold. These beings, they have... They have watched it. They have seen people come to Christ and being brought into heaven that were lost. Some of them are people that you know that have passed on. And they've seen that. And they've realized, I'm sure, that, that the whole plan of salvation is something that God didn't necessarily have to even put into place to begin with. But he did. What a joyful thing. To see, and they are seeing this, and so it says that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents and turns to the Lord. And so, I think we have to ask ourselves: you know, if angels are so joyful over seeing someone come to the Lord, shouldn't we be? They they weren't ever saved, but shouldn't we be joyful? Of course, we should. Very joyful. And that's what is represented here by the woman coming and finding her friends and neighbors, you might say the church, and having a big party because so-and-so got saved. You know, I'll close with this. There was a, uh, at the church that I uh, went to before before I I came back to Mount Calvary, uh, I heard this story about a man named Roy. He had passed on by the time I joined that church. But Roy had really grabbed grabbed the hearts of the people in that church during his few years in the church. Roy was in his 60s when he started attending the church. Somebody in the community had invited him to the church, and he was in his 60s. And Roy uh, had never been to church, and Roy was not saved. And Roy one day heard the gospel, and he received Christ, and he was saved in the church. And 
Roy, uh, Roy was a, a very, uh, you know, Roy, Roy wasn't brought up in the Presbyterian church. He didn't understand the whole Presbyterian demeanor where you keep it, keep it low, man. He didn't get that because he wasn't he didn't brought up in the church. And so the, the day he joined the church, they brought him up in front of the church, and uh, the pastor presented him the Bible, and, and Roy grabbed the Bible, and he started jumping up and down in the church. You don't do that in Presbyterian churches, right? Roy didn't care. He was saved. He was in his 60s. <laughs> he didn't care. And you know, every time the people in the church told me that story, they would smile. Why? Because they experienced the joy that Jesus is talking about here in verse 9. And they experienced it over and over again as they thought about Roy. And how they saw Roy come to Christ and have his heart changed, his mind changed, and his life changed. And so, and so it can be, and, and I'm sure that there's, there's some of you here, and maybe all of you have known somebody that came to Christ, and you've experienced that joy with them. It wasn't, wasn't it a joy like no other? And that's what we're after, isn't it? That's what we're after. We want to see people come to Christ and, and, and have that joy, and then we have that joy with them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, through, uh, through the hand of Luke, uh, you inspiring Luke to write this parable down that you spoke a long time ago. We thank you, Lord, that, that you had it put in your word. And Lord, we, we are fleshly beings. We are engulfed by the physical most of the time. But Lord, help us to help us to break out of that, to set our heart and our minds on the things above where you are seated at the right hand of God. That we would see people through the, the set of glasses that you tell us to put on here, the glasses that you give us through your spirit so that we see people as made in God's image, as see people as needing Christ, especially when they're more difficult to be around. Uh, Lord, help us to do that, even this week, as you might give us opportunities to be around people that don't know you. And make us salty and full of light, that we would be the beacons of light, and that we would be the tools in your hand that you've called us to be. And Lord, help us to not be ridden, ridden by guilt. If we need to confess uh, our, uh, our, our, any judgment that we might have had in our hearts, which I already mentioned that I struggled with at the park this week. Lord, help us to be those that would confess that and uh, ask your forgiveness and realize that we've been washed completely clean from that judgment. And then, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, the new set of glasses to see and, uh, and also the, the, uh, the urging in our hearts that we need to go out and, Lord, and to show the love of Christ that, uh, to these people that, that need you, Lord. Uh, and Lord, uh, help us to continually be gripped by the whole reality that we, uh, if it wasn't for your grace, that we would still be like them. But yet, because of your grace, we're not. And because of your grace, they don't have to be either. Lord, would you grip us with these things for your glory and for our well-being? And would you send us out of here encouraged and empowered? Father, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hammer of response will be from number 705, number 705, verses 1, 2, 
and 5.